This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Anzen Gasho, please repeat after me. All harmful actions, All harmful actions ever committed by me since of old, ever committed by me since of old on account of beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. On account of beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. Born of my body, mouth, and thought. Born of my body, mouth, and thought. Now I atone for it all. Now I atone for it all. Today and tomorrow, I will be speaking about the spirit of the precepts. And this verse of atonement, which traditionally opens a Jukai ceremony, an important way into how we understand the role of the precepts in our particular form of practice. See, when we recite this verse of atonement, not a matter of uh, saying something like uh, I know I screwed up I admit it, I'm sorry but I promise never to do it again uh, there's certainly a role for that kind of um, confession and apology and promise in practice but the spirit of the precepts uh, goes beyond that. So I don't, while I don't want to minimize uh, the need to acknowledge and uh, repair our mistakes, I don't want to see the precepts uh, reduced to that either. Now I'm going to talk about the precepts more or less from two different uh, directions. Uh, today, a little bit more from the direction of uh, how we can't possibly keep them. And uh, tomorrow from the direction of how we can't possibly break them. Uh, we'll be trying to put that, those two perspectives together and it's 
the discussion will continue uh, next week uh, an open discussion in our precepts group uh, back in New York now rather than acknowledging and correcting mistakes I'm, I'm going to suggest that the basic orientation of the precepts in our practice is to bear witness to life as it is and we have to then understand what we mean by this notion of bearing witness but also how uh, very different that is in this kind of um, lay practice from how the precepts originated in uh, the original Sangha around uh, Buddha. In that original monastic community, uh, we had a set of rules, uh, the Vinaya, which were intended to define, organize, and maintain uh, the life of a community of homeless and mendicant monks. And those rules, I always have trouble keeping track of how many there were, but there was something like 227 originally for the men and maybe 300 31 for the women they were considered either more unruly or more in need of protection depending on how you think about it and then in China that uh, adapted further and then the men ended up with 250 rules and the women another hundred or so more than that uh, but things changed very much when you got to Japan uh, and you ended up with uh, what were called sort of bodhisattva precepts. I think we're really a ten grave precepts plus fifty other rules. And it made uh, it's interesting to read uh, Dogen's story because uh, because he was ordained with these uh, particular Japanese tendai based precepts. When he went to China to study, he had a lot of trouble getting through the door. Uh, he hadn't received, you know, the full set of precepts that defined a monk uh, in the Chinese eyes, and they uh, made him cool his heels quite a while till they sort of sorted out his status and let him in. Uh, one result of that is when he came back to China, he sort of came back with this very simplified set of the precepts, the sixteen uh, precepts that we. Uh, used today trying to simplify what uh, all that meant if it was not uh, a complicated set of monastic rules and what we'll talk about tomorrow is more of Dogen's eventual understanding of the precepts as manifestations of the awakened life not as uh, rules to keep to get from here to there
But the thing I want to um, stress today was that original set of monastic rules uh, was an in, was intended to separate out the monks from the community around them in a very specific kind of way. Uh, not only were they admonished to uh, lead a moral life in terms that everyone uh, would understand uh, precepts against killing and stealing and so forth uh, but there were strict, pro strict prohibitions about owning anything of having any fixed abode of saving up anything for one day to the next and perhaps most importantly of strict celibacy um, I read somewhere that there were only four things that would get you thrown out of that original uh, community uh, murder, theft having sex or boasting about your spiritual attainment <laughs> They're just some things you just can't put up with, eh? Now that kind of picture of the precepts or, or monasticism is one in which we set ourselves apart from everybody else by the nature of our strict observance, right? we give ourselves a whole set of rules that other people don't have to live by and by doing so we're attempting to embody uh, the truths of impermanence and non-clinging and uh, non-attachment non uh, freeing ourselves from desire and we'll uh, and because of that model we're presuming we're you know not internally, intrinsically free of desire, we're going to make rules to get, make you live as if you were. <laughs> right? You will um, fake it till you make it. Right? Now, you know, we chant at the end of the meals, may we exist like a lotus at home in muddy water. Uh, one version of the meaning of that uh, in that older context is the sense that uh, we will be the one pure thing existing in this impure world uh, like the lotus we will come out of but rise above the muddy water uh, that has uh, originally given us life we will stand apart from that in, uh, in our purity Now monks of, in that kind of life are of course very dependent on the surrounding community that they are uh, standing apart from. So carefully, to be a homeless bhikkhu in India in those days is not the same as to be a homeless beggar on the streets of New York today. Uh, the mendicant monk played a very defined role within that culture and the culture 
had a place for them and the notion of giving alms and accruing merit by giving alms, this was deeply embedded in the culture so that even though the individual was in some sense uh, homeless and had no possessions, he could count on uh, a wider uh, cultural container to hold and maintain that form of life. And the other thing, in a certain sense, uh, these this monastic set of rules um, was meant to uh, enable a person to live an ideal life, an, uh, a life completely in accord with the Dharma, uh, in accord with the realizations of impermanence and uh, non-clinging. Um, but it's of course a life that if everybody adopted it would just simply be the end of life everybody would become celibate and that would be the end right? we'd have one generation and we'd, we'd finish it so there's this sense that there's a kind of literalness about the notion of extinction or nirvana built into making that an ideal right? One way or another, you never have the sense that um, Buddha expected everybody to do this. There's again, so always a sense that there's going to be a background uh, against this, which this will take place, and the monks will serve as a kind of inspirational beacon to other people. Uh, demonstrating in a very real way that it's possible to live a life without clinging to all the things that we think of that we we need to give us uh, security. Um, That that security is false and unreliable and letting go of it all together will bring about a different degree of uh, equanimity. And the life of a monk is a, is a kind of inspirational reminder of, of that truth to everybody, whether they live that life or not. Now in China, where there was less of that sense of the uh, wandering monk in the context of a, uh, an almsgiving culture, uh, things shifted and the monastic life became settled. Uh, It's usually attributed to Hyakujo uh, to have set up the rules for a monastic life where the monks would live in one place all year. They wouldn't be wandering around and just collecting during the rainy season, which is sort of the model in India. Uh, But they'd they'd be settled in one monastery and they would uh, be self-supporting. Uh, they would grow their own food. They would be subsistence farmers, you know, uh, in a way that uh, differentiated them less from uh, the surrounding community. What happens, though, is that you get a very complicated uh, relationship between the their role as monks and their role as priests and their role, the priest role to the surrounding community and, and the way that's plugged into uh, notions of 
merit and patronage um, so that although a day of no work is a day of no eating became a kind of model for the monastic in both China and Japan uh, the work of the monk increasingly became priestly work particularly in uh, Japan where they became uh, funeral directors uh, and there was a whole way in which the monastic or temple community related to the larger community less through alms although they preserved that somewhat symbolically but through large uh, sense of community or um, wealthy patronage In any case, the, what I'm trying to say by this whole historical background is that the precepts uh, function both to define a kind of form of life and a code of conduct for the, the monks, but it also said something about their relation to the larger world. Uh, how much we saw themselves as part of or separate from it. Now I would suggest that where we are today uh, trying to define and maintain lay practice in America the precepts uh, take on a kind of different function and a different connotation. They're not going to be rules of life that set us apart from everybody else. And our way of making a living is going to be uh, not set apart. It's going to be, we're in the community uh, for our daily life and come together best we can like this to practice. And our practice is going to be manifest not by just what we do in here, but how we live out in the world. So this brings me back to this uh, notion of bearing witness uh, as the what I'll suggest is a kind of essence of precept practice in um, lay life. And the way I would um, define bearing witness has to do with literally witnessing, observing, and experiencing, and acknowledging what's, what's going on. It's not about uh, intervening, changing, fixing, purifying, perfecting, or anything like that. And the best prototype that I can think for that is, is the way we bear witness to someone's dying. When someone dies, we are there to go through that passage with them as much as we can. We bear witness to the unavoidability, the reality of sickness, old age, and death. 
that these are intrinsic and inescapable aspects of what it is to be human. And by bearing witness to them, we're not condemning life for having this terrible design flaw, you know, that people don't last forever. We're not complaining or being bitter about it. We're trying to engage it with a attitude of deep acceptance of this is what life is. We're not standing outside of it, judging it. We're, we're in the midst of it. This is life. Now our bearing witness to it doesn't preclude trying to heal sickness or ease the pain of people as they die. There are all these ways in which we can do, we, we do everything we can to ameliorate the suffering of dying. But it's not our job or it's not our goal to eliminate dying itself. It's not our job to eliminate the reality of sickness, old age, and death themselves. We'll do everything we can to relieve them. But in some way we accept that they are part of uh, the human condition. Now what I would suggest is that we go through in our thinking of the, the precepts with the same attitude of bearing witness. I'm not going to go through all of them uh, right now. Maybe we'll do some of that more in particular in our discussion. But I would begin by saying we bear witness to the reality of killing in this world. We bear witness to the fact that our lives inevitably are grounded in the death of other creatures, whether plant or animal. And that life, our life is inseparable from a whole cycle of, of birth and death, uh, which we partake into our advantage. Uh, that we have our place in the world and the food chain and it is not possible to be in this world without at some level doing harm to something or someone else. The same way we bear witness to stealing or inequality. What we have we have by the virtue of the fact that someone else doesn't have it. That the fact of possession is, is not uh, going to go away. We do our best to be generous or charitable or take care of those around us but that there are built-in limitations to what we can do. And that we acknowledge these. We bear witness to 
the reality of sexuality, which is not always going to be simply intimate and compassionate and loving. It will always be fueled by fantasy and desire, and that we have to own and account for the reality of, of our unconscious, which is not going to be tame or polite all the time. And so forth through that, and, and many of the others, I think, make us also acknowledge the way in which we have a need for our own personal acknowledgement and attention. And if we don't get that, if we deny that to ourselves, we won't be really be able to, to flourish. See, in a large way, bearing witness is bearing witness to the reality of separation, the reality of individual and personal need. Even when we say it's going to take place in a context of interdependence or oneness, the dimension of separation, uh, the personal, is not eradicated, can't be eradicated. And there's a particular kind of Zen sickness. Uh, if a person tries to live in such a way that they, you know, I've described it as saving all beings minus one, uh, trying in the name of compassion to serve everyone else's needs, but to deny the reality of your own. Uh, it just doesn't work. It, um, well, a lot of those people end up in my office, so I shouldn't complain. It keeps me in business. <laughs> it's, it's part of the way I bear witness to my life being sustained by other people's suffering. <laughs> They are part of what we want to do in this practice. So I say, bear witness to life as it is. Uh, what Joko called our one true teacher. And we are part of life as it is and our own limits and separations and needs and reactivity is part of that. We're not here to somehow wipe that smooth or, or purify it. Um, so I said in another context, it's not our goal to somehow breed vegetarian tigers. Uh, we have to somehow find some way to accommodate all the aspects of, of our nature. Um, in some ways, um, Buddhism is, presents itself as a religion of peace and compassion. But if you go to a Sashin at a Rinzai monastery, you find that they have lots of very good ways to channel aggression and toughness, right? And that, that sense of uh, the, uh, the heroics of endurance. Right? They're, 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 they find that they're not going to eradicate their tiger side. They're going to embrace it in a kind of samurai ethic that can, um, uh, you know, certainly err on the side of being 
macho and elitist and aggressive, but in some way there's at least this acknowledgement of, uh, you know, toughness is part of who we are. We're going to channel this. And if you're, you know, training a lot of uh, 19 and 20 year olds uh, who are full of testosterone, it's probably a good idea to have a practice that can uh, uh, find a, an outlet for all of that. When we get a um, room full of people my age, you probably can tell them to down a little. Right? But there's some way in which at least that acknowledges the reality of that side of uh, the culture, that side of uh, what kind of uh, young men they're dealing with by and large. Joko always said that um, it's a mistake in practice to look for the absolute only in uh, you know rare experiences of uh, oneness uh, where somehow everything dissolves and you feel part of everything. She said if you look for oneness in non-separation from this moment regardless of its content and the uh, content of most moments are going to be about the reality of separation. Uh, the reality of little moments of anger or anxiety or likes and dislikes where we say, no, not that, not that. Well, the absolute is present right there too. If you're fully at that edge of no, right? Don't try to eliminate all those edges. Try to be completely present for them, to be honest about them, to make that a place of uh, your practice. See, that's, that's practicing in the midst of uh, separation. That's being enlightened about the nature of delusion. Okay? that it is how our life actually manifests moment after moment and that's where we have to be completely. So I'll leave you with that idea to uh, mull over um, of the precepts as bearing witness to life as it is. To bearing witness to our own greed, anger, ignorance as the unavoidable marks of one side of our of our life, that life, that side of the relative of separation. Uh, and it is not our uh, goal to eliminate it or to uh, demonize it. Uh, in the same way, it's not our goal to hate life uh, because it contains old age and death. We want to find our way 
to loving this life as it is. Right? That's in a sense what makes this a religious practice. That we can acknowledge all these aspects of, of life and still find a way to say yes to it. And that'll bring us more to our topic for tomorrow, how the side of life where the precepts cannot be broken, where they are always fulfilled moment after moment. <clears throat>